Welcome to MNI's FedSpeak podcast. I'm Jean Young, reporter in Washington. Today, we're talking about the SEC's landmark new regulation on central clearing for the U.S. Treasury market, which was just voted into law on Wednesday. And my guest is Professor Daryl Duffy of Stanford's Graduate School of Business. Daryl, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's great to be here, Jean. Thanks for inviting me. So we couldn't have found a better person to explore this topic this week. You spent part of last year on sabbatical at the New York Fed, working with their economists on what's driving an increase in illiquidity in the treasury market in recent years. You've also presented a paper at Jackson Hole this summer on this very topic. So should we start with the basics? You've long argued that we need more central clearing of treasury trades and that that would bolster the resilience of the market as a whole. Why is that? And what's in this new SEC regulation that would change how trades are done? Well, first, uh, why treasury markets as opposed to any other market? That's easy. The treasury securities market is the world's most important securities market. So why wouldn't we do everything possible to make sure that that market is not going to break down from counterparty risk or a lack of resilience to heavy uh, demands for trade? And why would central clearing help in that respect? Well, it, it has a number of terrific benefits. Well, one of them, which is the intended objective of central clearing, is to lower counterparty failure risk so that if someone is unable to meet their trade obligation, the central counterparty, in the case of the treasury market, that's the fixed income clearing corporation, can step in and make sure that the trade is completed. It guarantees every trade. So it lowers default risk, but it has many other benefits. Not only does it guarantee each trade, it lowers the total amount of exposure in the market to failure because of the netting at the central counterparty of buyers against sellers. So that if Eugene had promised someone to buy a hundred million worth of some treasury security and promised somebody else to sell 80 million of that security, you are committed for 180 million of trades. That's a lot of exposure to your firm. If you were to net those at the fixed income clearing corporation, your 100 million buy would be netted against your 80 million sell at FIC. And so you'd only have a $20 million obligation that would lower your counterparty risk significantly. So the big web of bilateral trades that are currently in the treasury market, about 80% of trades are not centrally cleared those would net down to a much smaller amount of exposure. Some research at the New York Fed by Michael Fleming and Frank Keen shows that on peak days, like in March of 2020, those bilateral exposures exceeded a trillion dollars for one day's worth of settlements, and that they would have netted down with a broad central clearing to about 300 billion, about a 70% reduction. So a huge amount of reduction in counterparty risk. That's one of the most important benefits of central clearing, but there are others. <laughs> one of them is that um, there's increased transparency. We would know, at least a central counterparty would know, and it's a regulated entity, that all the trades are margined properly. And we would know where to go to find out that the margining is correct, and everyone would have confidence that the margining is correct. 
Uh, so that would remove a source of uncertainty that can generate panic in a stress period. Another feature of central clearing that might improve its resilience would be that if it's done well, then trade platform operators could set up all-to-all -all trade for some of the trading, and then that would improve the resilience of the market because you wouldn't need to rely only on the large bank dealers to handle most of the trades. You could have some investors be able to trade directly with each other, and that would be a safety valve in terms of the resilience of the market. In March 2020, we found that in our research at the New York Fed, uh, that was with the same two, Frank Keane, Michael Fleming, and several others, Or Shakar, Claire Nelson, and Peter Van Tassel. We, we discovered that in March of 2020, the dealers really were reaching capacity in terms of their ability to handle trade. So if you can get some of the trade done on all-to-all -all trade venues where investors can trade directly with each other, that also improves resilience because it adds capacity to the market. Those are just a few of the benefits, Gene. I hope I didn't overextend myself with uh, enthusiasm. There are some costs, Gene. I, I have to say there are also some costs. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about them a little bit later. That 70% number, I'm assuming that assumes all central clearing in the market. The SEC rule doesn't go quite that far, right? Yeah. In fact, uh, Jessica Wachter and others at that SEC hearing on Wednesday noted that the benefits of central clearing are bigger the more uh, market participants that are participating in central clearing. And it's true. The number at the New York Fed was assuming 100% central clearing, whereas in practice, because of exemptions that the SEC rule allows, we won't get 100%. It'll be most of the repo markets, that is the financing of treasury securities, will be centrally cleared except for those of official sector institutions and a few others, local governments, and so on. And in the cash securities market, there are quite a few except exceptions. Uh, so you won't get 100% of the benefits that I described, but it's still a big step forward, and I'm totally in favor. So the final rule covers fewer treasury trades than in the initial draft that was proposed last year. In particular, you mentioned that hedge funds and leveraged traders won't, won't be required to clear cash trades. And there was a lot of pushback on that. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Well, I didn't get to see the pushback directly, uh, but I heard about it. I mean, a lot of market participants uh, told me, and I see in comment letters to the SEC, uh, that they were discouraged by the cost of central clearing. It's accurate that they would face higher costs. They would have to face legal costs and operational costs for getting onboarded and operating, and they would have to pay clearing fees. They would have to finance margins, which in the repo market, they hadn't been actually providing, which is a concern to me. Uh, so they, they would have uh, greater costs, and uh, they felt that that would harm them, or not all of them, but some did. Some of the hedge funds actually were proponents of central clearing, including for themselves. Overall, I guess the SEC was convinced that uh, their concerns were at least sufficiently valid to set those market participants aside. I noticed also in the rule 
the SEC discussed on that point uh, the idea that they could revisit this in the future if it turned out to be uh, a good idea to do that. And I hope they will consider that in the future. Okay. Can you talk about some of the costs and who bears them in the rule? So there's going to be margin requirements and fees paid to the central clearinghouse. Sure. Well, there's uh, two types of costs, uh, the way I like to separate them. One is uh, what economists call deadweight costs, things that you can't recover. They're not just transfers from one market participant to another. And those are things like legal costs, onboarding costs, the cost for operating the central counterparty, and so on. Those are just frictional costs that you can't you can't recover to be weighed against the benefits. Then there are a lot of other costs which an individual market participant perceives because it's a transfer to some other market participant. So for example, if I put up margin to guarantee a trade between you and me, well, that's costly to me because I have to finance the margin, but it's good for you <laughs> because now your trade is going to be uh, safer and the margin will be available to you. That's one example of a transfer. Now, let's say I'm reluctant uh, to put up margin. It's because, you know, why would I feel better about making you safer? Well, that's sometimes not going to get internalized into my incentives, but it will improve the safety of the market overall. So some of these costs to individual market participants are what economists call externalities. They improve the safety of the market overall in a way that individual market participants might not appreciate with respect to their own um, you know, annual income or PL. So um, you know, as I said, I like to make a distinction between the costs that are deadweight costs or frictional losses to the system and those that are transfers between different market participants in the system. And uh, the margining costs are a significant part of those transfers. One other topic of focus on, on this has been whether there's going to be some minimum haircut for the hedge funds, um, and they turned out not to be any uh, at this point, but it could be revisited. Is, is that an important issue to be discussed? Well, in the repo market currently, uh, a study by the Office of Financial Research at the U.S. Treasury Department showed that roughly 70% of non-centrally cleared repos don't have any margin at all, no haircut, uh, which is concerning. The fact that there's no haircuts for a large part of the market would be nice to address that. So, yeah, I mean, you might say if the SEC had unlimited authority and it wasn't worried about the cost to individuals of putting up margin, then it would have made the system safer to have higher margins for everyone, including the most levered investors, which tend to be hedge funds. On the other hand, the SEC's authorities are not unlimited, and perhaps they were also convinced that the cost of uh, putting up margin would be something 
important to a sufficient set of market participants but i didn't i didn't uh know which uh of the uh reasons that the sec had in mind for uh, not changing those margin requirements it did discuss in its uh final rulemaking uh that it uh viewed the fixed income clearing corporation as having sufficient incentive to set margins appropriately and that it need not uh, set margins on its own. And again, the SEC could always step in later. So there was one commissioner, Hester Pierce, who voted against the rule. She was in favor of a more incremental approach. What does that concern involve? It's a pretty easy one. You know, I'll put it in my own words, uh, but she would say, why would you make a big step forward when you could make smaller steps and check along the way whether you're headed in the right direction? And that's a reasonable concern. I guess to be weighed against that concern uh, is the fact that if you only go in small steps, each time you have to start again, a whole new rulemaking process, uh, exposure drafts, comments, uh, getting uh, a sufficient number of commissioners to become conversant with each incremental step and then vote for it. I have to get the entire staff at the Division of Trading and Markets involved and all of the other divisions that you saw at the hearing on Wednesday. So it's a very significant process to make each incremental rule. One could address the problem that she described kind of in reverse. Suppose you make 10 steps forward and then you discover that, you know, maybe the seventh or eighth step was excessive. Well, then via a new rulemaking, you could go back and adjust the rules that turned out to be incorrect or inappropriate or inefficient. So one, one can do it by taking big steps and then adjusting or by taking small steps as uh, Commissioner Pierce preferred. Uh, but I, I think I understand the SEC's approach of taking a bigger step now. It's very difficult to get change in the U.S. Treasury market regulations. They've been discussed, as I noted in one of my uh, papers at the Brookings Institution, they've been discussed for many years. Each time market participants and regulators say, it's time we made some big changes and introduce central clearing or other uh, improvements. And each time it's very difficult to get a consensus and move forward. So I applaud the SEC for actually finding a way to get a significant improvement in the rules through the entire process from beginning to end. There is a phase-in period, and there are at least two years for market participants to uncover any problems that they may have in implementing these rules. And so it's not that we're going to take a giant step immediately, but rather after a delay that allows the market to get ready for it. Yeah. Is there anything in the regulation you would change at this point? Well, you know, I have, I don't, I don't have a staff like the SEC <laughs> that's uh, pouring over all of the costs and benefits. I trust their analysis. I would have preferred to see a larger set of uh, trades included in the uh, cash securities market rather than exempted. Uh, because as was said at the hearing, the more trades you include, the better the net benefits of central clearing. It's a nonlinear effect. 
sometimes economists call it a network externality. The more that others are doing it, the greater the benefits are for you for doing it. Uh, but apparently the SEC did do a careful study of costs and benefits or its, uh, its rulemaking abilities, or perhaps it gauged the preferences of the individual commissioners as to how far they would go on this point uh, in order to get a majority of them uh, to agree with the rule. Again, I'm not privy to all the deliberations uh, at the SEC. So, uh, you know, I'm not going to fault them for doing less than I had hoped originally that they would do. Yeah. In terms of the exemptions, are you talking about the foreign sovereign entities and local governments or, or more on the leveraged trade side? Okay, that's an interesting question. There is a history of uh, rulemaking in the international financial markets by which each sovereign seems to pay deference to the other sovereigns by excluding them from onerous rules. Of course, there are going to be sovereigns or local governments which got exemptions, which one might say, well, there's some counterparty risk. They're not all perfectly default free. It would have been better to bring them in. But in the uh, international political quid pro quo that you get in rulemaking, it's understandable that they got those exemptions. I would have been surprised if they had not. Mm -hmm. When you turn, however, to levered investors in the private sector, yeah, I had kind of imagined that they might be included. Um, some hedge funds, for example, that take a lot of leverage. Now, it's also the case that the rule does include uh, brokers dealer and dealers in government securities. And some of those hedge funds are regulated as brokers or dealers, or they have broker or dealer divisions. And therefore, some of them will be included anyway. There's also a separate uh, rule that's been proposed by the SEC to expand the set of government dealers so that it would include some additional uh, investors that are currently levered investors as regulated dealers, and then they would, I guess, be included. So eventually you might uh, capture a significant fraction of the firms that you that, that I feel uh, would be better included. Um, but, you know, that's that's the way it goes. Well, this is a, a big first step anyway. Very significant first step. As I said, I'm very pleased that they were able to get this uh, this rule passed and uh, into into law. OK, so let's talk about some of the the concerns or, or the kind of new risks that this brings up. Some people have said that broader clearing would concentrate risk in the central clearinghouse, for example. Is there anything in the regulation to address that? Uh, yes, there there is. Well, at the hearing, uh, if you had a chance to listen, it was noted that in a prior recent rulemaking, the SEC has expanded the uh, rules regarding governance and supervision of the Fixed Income Clearing Corporation or any other covered uh, central counterparty. And so that's uh, one way to cover this issue. It is true that as you take very dispersed web of bilateral uh, positions, 
uh, that are completely decentralized and you put them all into a central counterparty, you are concentrating more risk in one place. However, one can get the wrong impression about what that means. Uh, a metaphor might be that you're taking a lot of little uh, lumps of risk and you're piling them all up into one giant heap. <laughs> Uh, but that's actually the wrong metaphor to have in your mind. Uh, remember the point I mentioned earlier about the effect of netting, which reduces the risk quite substantially, up to 70%, as I mentioned, depending on how much clearing is done. So when you take all of those lumps uh, of risk in the bilateral market and you heap them all in one spot, they turn out to be a much smaller heap than, uh, than the total amount of the individual lumps of risk that you started with. So yes, you're increasing concentration, but the total amount of risk is going down quite substantially. Moreover, it's going into a place that's well-supervised, is margined, whereas in the bilateral market was not margined, and is uh, more transparent. So overall, I would say this is a reduction in systemic risk that is quite substantial. It's not an increase in systemic risk. It does, however, in, raise the ante on good supervision and risk management. I've talked to uh, some of the leading experts at the Fixed Income Clearing Corporation, like Laura Klimple, and I'm completely impressed with the quality of their uh, risk management at uh, the Fixed Income Clearing Corporation. And I'm expecting that they will do an excellent job in handling this increased amount of central clearing that they're going to do. Lastly, I, I want to ask you, in terms of the big picture, we know central clearing doesn't directly address the issue of declining market liquidity for treasuries, although SEC Chair Gary Gensler has argued that it could ultimately improve liquidity by increasing the diversity of market participants. How transformative do you think that this new regulation is in, in reorganizing the market and, and increasing the resilience? Uh, well, it's in a broad sense, it's a highly transformative uh, it definitely uh, is a big reorganization of uh, the lines of counterparty risk in the market and the way that the market is margined and settled. So that's a big plus. It's uh, it's lowering risk, uh, lowering systemic risk, so lowering resilience in that sense. From the viewpoint of liquidity, I think it's also improving resilience. Now, one can argue it both ways. One could say, well, if some market participants perceive higher costs for settling their trades, they might not trade as actively and that could lower liquidity. And directionally, that might be true for some market participants. But now let's consider the opposite effects on liquidity and resilience of liquidity under stress. Because of central clearing, as I mentioned, netting lowers the risk for handling a given amount of trade. So dealers in principle should be willing to offer more liquid markets when they're able to net their purchases against their sales because it's less expensive. The bid offer spreads go down, the price impacts should go down, the dealers should offer greater depth in the market for US Treasury securities. And under stress, 
they'll have less loading on their balance sheets. So we'll have more remaining capacity to handle a surge of trading demands in a stress situation. Overall, I would expect that liquidity will improve from that alone. And further, as I mentioned before, central clearing could be a gateway to some all-to-all -all trade, which could further improve market liquidity and competitiveness in the market. When one asks a dealer for a price, one can compare it to an exchange price and consider the alternative of trading on the exchange. The dealer is aware of that alternative and is going to have to compete to get your trade. Uh, more than more so than would be the case in a market in which your alternative is to go only to another dealer. Now, I'm not 100% confident that all-to-all -all trade will come quickly or uh, take a significant share of trade, but it's an opportunity for trade platform operators to compete uh, for the provision of liquidity to the market with uh, bilateral trading with dealers. Dealers could, of course, still take a very substantial fraction of trade, both off of the all-to-all -all trade platforms and also on all-to-all -all trade platforms. So altogether, uh, uh, the improved price transparency and the improved levels of competition, the improved resilience under stress, the improved capacity of dealers to handle trades, uh, I expect overall to, uh, to see a significant improvement in liquidity over the coming years, but it takes a while. That's a lot to think about and a lot to watch over the next few years. Thank you so much, Daryl. This is a really great conversation. Thank you, Jean. It was a real pleasure to be with you today.